McKenzie, where, where did McKenzie go? Oh, there you are. You triggered a childhood memory for me as a middle child <laughs> with an older brother who was uh, smaller than I for a good part of our growing up, but a master of psychological warfare. So every time he would unleash on me and I would start crying and running to mom and dad, he would say the following words, shh, you'll get us both in trouble. Everything we do, we do with intention, with purpose, and with focus. I invite you now to set down those distractions, those burdens that you carry that stand between you and the God who, with open arms and an open heart, welcomes you into the very presence of the divine. That's the power of prayer. And that is what we engage in now. So I invite you to pray with me. Oh, almighty God, for the gift of prayer, we give you our thanks. For the privilege of worship, we give you our thanks. For the joy of being in community, the church together, we give you our thanks. And for the indescribable gift of Jesus, in whose name all of these gifts have come, we thank you. And we confess to you this morning that that time is already upon us where we are making our lists. We're checking them twice. All of the gifts that need purchasing. All of the encounters and parties that need attending or hosting. This is a busy, busy time. And we fear we're going to lose something important if we don't write it down and let that list hold us accountable. Sometimes, gracious God, we feel like Martha, who in her busyness, even in your presence, missed what you called the most important thing. We've made all of our Martha lists but as he pointed to her sister, Mary, sitting expectantly and receptively at your feet, listening and learning what it meant to be truly yours, we confess that our Mary lists are often so lean if they exist at all. We know how important it is to stay busy and on top of things, and yet, gracious God, we come today asking that you would meet us in that place that goes unmet by tending to all the needs in the world. Your presence and your love that only come from you. And so we ask this morning that you would grace us with that presence that your Holy Spirit would speak into our hearts and into our lives. Let us never take for granted the promise that you do not keep a list of our wrongs, but instead, in your forgiveness, invite us more and more deeply along this way of salvation and following Jesus. 
Give us courage to believe that there may come a time when we no longer need to make lists. That our transformation would be so complete individually and congregationally that we would, by design, by instinct, by that still small voice deep within, know which way to go and know what it is that we do. So we no longer keep that list of what we should have done and shouldn't have done, but we would be finally and fully yours. Thank you for the examples of so many who have showed us what a life like that looks like. May we shine forth that same witness to one another and to a watching world by the power of your Holy Spirit and in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.
Good morning. I wanted to take some time to share with you all about the gift that you gave me in my sabbatical that I got to take this past uh, spring and summer. And it was a great gift, and I'm very thankful for it. Uh, before I went and kind of when I came back, I received a lot of well wishes from you all. And a common theme among them was rest. Danny, I hope you get some rest, or I hope your sabbatical was restful. Uh, and while I appreciate those well wishes, and it was a restful time, that was not uh, the goal of my sabbatical. Uh, it wasn't something that I needed, if anything, quite the opposite. Our church did the right thing when it came with, to COVID and shutting down and going remote. Uh, but as is often the case with doing the right thing, it came with a cost. And many of the things that had been life-giving in ministry for me over the years were kind of reduced or taken away. Ministry programs that I enjoyed being a part of, relationships that were life-giving to me, they were gone. And so if anything, I was ready to work again, ready to do ministry again. And as I was going on sabbaticals, when the Omicron wave was, was petering out, and it looked like we could finally talk about coming back together and doing these things that I missed for two and a half years, but it was time for me to go. And so in many ways, leaving on sabbatical was challenging. So rest was, was not the sought after thing. Additionally, my family lovingly coined a phrase to describe what my sabbatical was not. And this is it. Danny or daddy, your sabbatical is not a sit on your butticle. <laughs> yeah, very helpful. Uh, with that, our scripture reading comes from a couple of places. Um, from uh, Philemon, Paul's letter to his friend Philemon, and from Romans, Paul's letter to the church at Rome. I would encourage you to, if you're going to read along, to go ahead and get Romans pulled up. Uh, Philemon is just a couple of verses. So Philemon, verse 1. I, Paul, a prisoner of Christ Jesus, and Timothy, our brother. In verse 9. I appeal to you on the basis of love, and I, Paul, do this as an old man, and now also as a prisoner of Christ Jesus. And the end of Romans, starting in chapter 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a deacon of the church at Sinecrae, so that you may welcome her in the Lord as is fitting for the saints, and help her in whatever she may require from you. For she has been a benefactor of many, and of myself as well. Greet Priscilla and Aquila, who work with me in Christ Jesus, and who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but also all of the churches of the Gentiles. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Aphanatus, who was the first convert in Asia for Christ. Greet Mary, who has worked hard among you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my relatives who were in prison with me. They were prominent among the disciples, among the apostles, and they were in Christ before I was. Good Amplitus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our co-worker in Christ, my beloved Stasis. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my relative Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Triophena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has also worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, and greet his mother, a mother to me also. 
Greet Asyncritus, Phlegion, Hermes, Patrobos, Hermas, and the brothers and sisters who are with them. Greet Phlegus, Julia, Nursus, and his sister, and Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All of the churches of Christ greet you. Before we get into that, on my sabbatical, there were kind of three big takeaways that, that I learned or experienced or realized. I visited many of our, our youth alumni, all of our youth alumni who are serving in ministry in a church setting. Um, and learned a lot there, but common among all of these youth who are serving in ministry in a church setting, they are all in small churches, 50 or less. And they want to be in small churches, and they don't want to be in large churches. Well, I don't have time to go over this, but I, I know that I am not the only thing that forms these youth and I'm not even near the top of the things that form them, but there has to be something to the fact that all them who felt a call to ministry while in youth here want to be in tiny churches. There's something to that that we won't discuss today. Secondly, I learned and realized that as I visited these churches and compared and contrasted them to Yates and reflected on my role as a minister and how ministry is done at these other churches I visited, I realized that I have a lot of tools and language and the ability to articulate very precisely what I find off in churches. But when it comes to articulating and giving vocabulary to what churches do well, I don't have the same level of skill. I don't think this is unique to me, uh, based on some of the emails I often get from you all. I mean that in love. Um, <laughs> it's very easy to articulate when a church is, is flawed, right? We can say if a, the sermon was, was too dry, or the sermon was too emotional, or worship was too loud, or it was too quiet. We have all these things to describe what things shouldn't be, but when it comes to articulating what is great, that uh, is more challenging, right? We're, we're not a business. We can't describe ourselves by how much money we make or how many units we move. But on the opposite side, we can't just go on feelings. Uh, the church made me feel a certain way. I mean, I feel emotional from romantic comedies. doesn't mean it's a good worship experience. That's something else we'll talk about later. The main takeaway is that I, as I visited these churches, I, I realized that churches teach a lot of things indirectly. Churches teach a lot in their gathering. Before a, a single word is preached or prayed or sung or given a testimony or responsively read, a church has already communicated and taught a great deal. And I'm not talking about first impressions. I, I think for Christians, the idea of valuing a first impression, and I'm gonna put this gently, is stupid. Jesus did not make a good first impression on most of the people that he met. He was labeled a, a sinner and a drunkard by the company that he kept. And the people who he did make a good first impression, they got it wrong. Hey, this guy's going to overthrow Rome. This guy is going to redeem Israel. Hosanna. And then a few days later, never mind, crucify him. Jesus did not make a good first impression. I'm not talking about churches doing that. I'm talking about the subtle, indirect things that we communicate and how we gather and how we operate. And I think that is what Paul is getting at in his two letters that we've referenced this morning. Now, Philemon, all the smart people who study the Bible full-time agree that Philemon is the last letter that Paul wrote in the New Testament. So it's written by the oldest Paul, the most experienced Paul, and I think the most seasoned and wise Paul. And as a result, that letter reads much differently than his other letters. We know that Paul ministered to the churches that he planted and helped them along, and he had issues with authority, 
And when Paul wanted to demonstrate that he was an authority figure, here's why you should listen to me, he had a very impressive resume. He had many things that he could point to that say, here's why I'm a great leader, here's why you should do what I say. Paul was a Roman citizen. Rome was a highfalutin place, and being born a Roman citizen brought you many privileges and rights, and Paul exploited those to his advantage. You should listen to me because I'm a Roman citizen. Paul was also a former Pharisee, a highly educated, highly religiously educated person. He had the, the elite education of his day in religion, and he appealed to that part of his background as a way to say, here's why I'm an authority figure. Paul was a Jew born into God's chosen people. He used that part of his life as an appeal to authority. He would say to the Gentiles, you people were grafted onto me. Listen to what I say. And lastly, probably the biggest, Paul had a direct command from the risen Jesus on the road to Damascus. If that isn't a way to demonstrate authority to the early church, I don't know what is. And Paul uses all these things in his letters to settle arguments. Here's why you should listen to me. Look at my impressive background. But in Philemon, he does none of those things. They are conspicuously absent. Paul doesn't refer to himself as a former Pharisee or a Jew or a Roman citizen or a direct contact with the risen Lord. Instead, he gives himself two titles in Philemon. You may have caught them. He calls himself an old man and a prisoner. Those are the titles that Paul leads with in his letters, and there's nothing impressive about those. Rather than pointing to his impressive background, he says, I'm an old man and I'm in prison. Paul is living out what he spoke in earlier letters of Christ's power made perfect in weakness, but he doesn't have to say it directly. He appeals to very low things. And it's not that Philemon is an unimportant letter. It's not that he doesn't care about the subject matter. Philemon, spoiler alert, is about slavery. Paul's friend Philemon owns a slave. And at, the issue here, is it okay for a Christian to own another person? particularly if that person is also a Christian. So it's a very important issue in the New Testament church. Now, Philemon reads much differently. Paul doesn't make the long arguments that he makes in other letters. You may have noticed that Philemon is only one chapter long. There are none of these impressive, what we call Pauline phrases. There are no deep theological vocabulary. Paul doesn't quote any hymns. He doesn't quote the Old Testament. His argument is very simple. He says, Philemon, you're my friend. I love you. I'm not going to tell you what to do because I know you'll do the right thing. I think that is the subtle model of the New Testament church that Paul had learned in his older age. It's not a church based on impressive leaders. It's not a church based on an impressive resume or impressive productions. It's one based on mutual love. And I think Paul would have a word. We see the megachurches that have all these pastor scandals, these impressive pastors, million-dollar salaries, impressive resumes, multiple campuses. And we see what happens, all the scandals we're dealing with. That is not the model of the New Testament church that Paul left with us. It's not about being impressive. In a similar way, in Romans, Paul gives us another model of the church, a subtle model of what the church communicates indirectly. And he ends with our favorite Bible reading, a list of names. Now, you won't find this list of names crocheted on a pillow at Hobby Lobby. I checked, just to be sure. Um, but it is an impressive teaching tool nonetheless. In earlier letters of Paul, Paul had to be more direct. The people who are really smart say that Galatians is the first letter that Paul wrote, while Romans comes later in his career. In Galatians, Paul is much more direct, and he's much more angry. He calls the Galatians fools several times. 
He even insults his theological opponents with an insult so crass that I can't say it here with children present. I would encourage you to Google it or not. Um, Paul makes a bold claim in Galatians. He says that in Christ there is no male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. That is a very dangerous and bold thing to say in his world. Men and women had assigned roles that they were not to deviate from, and it kept their world running in their eyes. Greeks and Jews had different, opposite, often opposite and opposing cultures that had been passed down for generations through family and kept their world in order. And of course, a free person thought they were way more valuable than a slave who was not a person, but a tool, a person to do a job. And so for Paul to say to the Galatians, all these ways that you define yourself, that you find value, none of them are important if you're a Christian. Imagine someone coming here and saying, all of your achievements, your job, your money, your possessions, your education, all your achievements, if you're a Christian, they mean nothing. That's what Paul was saying to the church of Galatia, and it's a very bold message. He doesn't say that in Romans. And it's weird that it's absent here. If there is ever a people group that needed to know that their identity culturally didn't matter, it's the Romans. Again, being born a Roman citizen had lots of privileges. They were the highfalutin place. The best analogy I can think of is that they were the New Yorkers of their day. Within a few moments of meeting a Roman, you knew they were from Rome. <laughs> so if there, sorry, Sean, uh, if there, um, <laughs> If there ever was a people that needed to know these cultural identities don't matter, it's the Roman people. And yet Paul doesn't say that to them. He doesn't say that in Christ there is no Rome. And it's because he doesn't have to. He ends his letter with, again, our favorite part of scripture, a list of names. And this is the teaching tool. Right away, Paul says the letter's being sent via Phoebe. He trusts this very important message to a very highfalutin church to a woman. And if it's not enough to show that he values her, he explicitly calls her a deacon. Now, there are some translations that don't translate that word deacon because of the theological prejudice against women being deacons. But she is a deacon, and Paul entrusts this very important message to a woman. In Christ, there is no male nor female. The letter is to go to the house church that is led by Priscilla and Aquila. Now, this is, this is not part of the sermon. This is just a freebie. If your name is Priscilla and you choose to marry someone named Aquila, hi, Priscilla, the one name that rhymes with Priscilla, that is true love. There is a reason that I could not marry a Fanny. Lot, lots of reasons now, but um, a person named Fanny. Um, this letter is to go to a house church that is led by Priscilla and Aquila. Notice whose name is first in a reversal of norms. Paul does not think that her husband runs the church, but Priscilla is the head of this church. She is the pastor. In Christ, there is no male nor female. Going down the list, Ephanatus. Paul explicitly points out this is the first Asian convert to Christ a new cultural addition. In Christ, there is no Greek nor Jew. Rufus is named, also the name of my dog. Uh, Rufus is the son of Simon of Cyrene. Cyrene being the person, Simon being the person who carried Jesus' cross, Cyrene a place in Africa, also a new addition to the church. In Christ, there is no Greek nor Jew. 
You may have heard some familiar sounding Greek names like Herodian, Narcissus, Hermas. These are not the famous leaders. Uh, these are more likely their property. In the ancient world, slaves did not have names. They were not viewed as people. They were instead named after their owner. And less named after, but more, this person belongs to, and then the owner's name is applied to that person. Persis is a Greek word for Greek or Persian woman. If you have a generic name like that, it's likely you also were a slave. And there's a whole list of slaves in this highfalutin church in Rome, the most powerful place at the time. In Christ, there is no slave nor free. Paul did not have to say the words he said in Galatians. He did not have to preach that message because the church, every time they gathered, could look around and see that message clearly taught. No matter what worship was like that day or what was going on, if you looked around at your fellow brothers and sisters, you really got the message that in Christ there is no male nor female, Greek nor Jew, slave nor free. And this indirect way of teaching is far more effective than sermons or worship or Bible studies, as important as those things are. That's what I mainly encountered on my sabbatical. I, I spent time with lots of churches, but the one I spent the most with was a church called Edgewood uh, in Atlanta, Georgia. It just so happens that John Chaco, one of our youth alumni, is the youth minister there. Uh, he actually taught Sunday school to Marley and Ruby. Um, and Marley and Ruby told the whole church that when I was a teenager, I set a field on fire. Um, so, loving children. Anywho, uh, that church is, is a great, amazing place, and they teach in this same indirect way. They are in Edgewood, Atlanta. Edgewood, by all measurable standards, is the worst neighborhood in Atlanta. Crime, poverty, drugs, all that stuff, it's the worst. And so when they, this church was planted intentionally about 10 years ago, they said, let's not go to a place that will attract people by appealing to them. Let's go to a place where we're needed, where the love of God and the grace of Jesus is desperately needed. The pastors are not paid by the congregation. They don't want to be accountable to a salary. You better preach these things, you better do these songs so we give our money. Instead, they raise funds independently so that they can proceed as God calls them, not as a congregation demands. And the church is able to do some amazing things. I, I went down to help with an event called Rock on the Grass. Big block party with music. I, I played in a little band, and I helped with the barbecue. And I met a young woman there who helped me serve. Um, and we got into a very heated argument uh, about barbecue sauce. Don't get political, but uh, yeah, we had a long conversation. It was great. We served together. I, I learned later from one of the pastors of this church that this young woman was homeless by choice. Um, Edgewood has many members who are homeless. She was homeless by choice. She was estranged from her family, uh, but she had some career goals that were happening before she was cut off, and she wanted to continue those. And so to be an efficient user of time, she didn't want to have to waste her money on things like rent or utilities, insurance. She wanted to spend her money on her education, and so she chose to be homeless by choice, to live in her car to save money. The pastors of the church allowed and encouraged her to park her car in the church parking lot, a safer part of Edgewood. They also encouraged her uh, to shower at the parsonage. She had been showering at a local gym. They're doing this for a couple of reasons. Number one, they wanted to protect this young woman, uh, but also being in a congregation that is filled with many people who are homeless, they have met many people over the years and know their stories, and they have met many people who have done the homelessness by choice thing. What inevitably happens, though, is a, a health crisis 
a, uh, a robbery, an assault, and if you're a woman, a particular type of assault happens, and all of a sudden homelessness is less of a choice than it was before. We know that homelessness causes many mental health issues, and it's, it's a cycle, and sooner or later, what was once a choice to be homeless is now a nightmare that you can't escape. So I knew this woman was, was making a mistake, but they also know from the many homeless people they've worked with, you can't have that conversation directly. No one thinks they are going to fall into the same trap as others. So they were inviting her to be a part of the church, inviting her to sleep on the church campus, inviting her to shower in the parsonage as a way to get to know her and earn her trust and have that difficult conversation. And as I sat in worship one Sunday and, and she was there, I realized that she came to belong to the church in a very meaningful way. She wasn't wowed by amazing worship services or great preaching or a great facility or a great youth ministry or children's ministry. She came there because she was gently cared for and currently being cared for. And almost everyone in that congregation had a similar story of how they came to belong there. There was a, a young man who had severe PTSD and severe anxiety, and it was hard for him to be in crowds. In many worship services, he would just have to get up and excuse himself. One Sunday I was there uh, on a communion Sunday, and this young man had, had enough, and he got up and, and went outside to walk around, as he often did. As it came time to serve communion, uh, the pastor paused the service. And said, can someone go outside and see if so-and-so is, is pacing around? And let him know we're doing communion, and if he's ready, he can come back in. And so we sat there as a congregation and waited several minutes to make sure that everyone was included. Now, that compromised the communion service, but I think it was a subtle, more indirect way of teaching. Every church that I know and every church that I visited has some tagline or mission statement or something about everyone is welcome, God loves everyone, come as you are, a place for all people. And that is a great and powerful message, especially if we look how lonely and sad the world is. But at Edgewood, they didn't have to ever say that. Anyone, including my children who were there, could look around and see, wow, God really does love all kinds of people. Everyone really is welcome. Grace is a real thing. So coming full circle, the question as I return from sabbatical is what does our church teach in an indirect way? Before we preach or pray or sing, what have we taught as a congregation? Now, I mentioned before that it's easier for me to think of negative examples, and again, based on your emails, it's the same for you as well. It's easy to articulate where we are not doing things that we should. We are not living up to God's standard. But with eyes to see as I came back, there are many ways that Yates teaches in this indirect, and I would argue, more powerful and meaningful way. I would encourage you to keep your eyes open for these ways. It really helps with decision-making. How are we spending our time? How are we spending our resources? What are we doing as a church? These indirect moments are, are the great indicators of what is valuable. So there are many that I could report, and, and I've had to trim this sermon down quite a bit, but the most recent one came at Camp Cheerio. And again, Cheerio is our, our fall retreat with youth, youth and adults and children, and sometimes college students come back. And it's really open to everyone, I guess. Uh, at the end of Cheerio, as is our tradition, we don't plan an ending. We just say, hey, is there someone here who'd like to end our service? That was unintentional, by the way. There was one year that I forgot to get somebody to pray. I know that it's hard to believe that I missed the planning detail, but uh, it has become a beloved tradition ever since. And so I said, hey, would somebody like to close our time out in prayer? And lots of hands went up, youth and children and adults. It's always encouraging to see that. Um, I have said that if you ever want to get a group of teenagers to shut up, you just say, does anybody want to pray? And then all of a sudden, it works for adults, too. Um, thank you, Todd, for praying the other night, by the way. 
Anyway, um, lots of hands went up. The first one that went up, it went up in a very excited manner, was John Mark. And uh, John Mark came up and closed the service in prayer. It was awesome. It was beautiful. It was perfect. But by every measurable standard, that prayer was bad. He didn't quote scripture. He didn't name drop any theologians. He didn't make any deep points. He didn't quote any songs. Um, even the execution was not the greatest. He stuttered. He had trouble getting his words out. He trailed off. He rambled. Um, he didn't have a long list of resume. Of, Here's why my prayer is important. I'm educated. I'm smart. I have this experience. But the prayer was beautiful. If you don't know, John Mark is a child of this church. He was born here. He was raised here, nurtured here in the faith. Um, he is a child with Down syndrome. But he found a great place to belong here, to be loved and celebrated, not in a patronizing way, but in a real loving way. His dad was a minister here, and the plan was when his dad, or when John Mark graduated high school, his family would, excuse me, John would retire and the family would be done with ministry. And that's what happened. And when that happened, they moved their membership to our sister church, Mount Hermon. And there, as a young adult, John Mark found another place where he was loved and celebrated and accepted. And he knows that he is loved by both these congregations so much that he'd get up and give a prayer, knowing that it wouldn't be the greatest on paper, knowing that it wouldn't check the box of being impressive, knowing that it didn't have a big resume. But nonetheless, his prayer was greater than anything that anyone could give. It is one of those subtle, indirect moments that teaches more than its content. So with that, we will end our time with uh, John Mark's prayer. Well, as is tradition at Cheerio, we don't schedule someone to end our time with prayer. Uh, we just ask, uh, is there anyone here who would like to officially wrap up our Cheerio time uh, with a closing prayer? John Amen. Amen.